0: This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Connecticut's economic recovery is going to be pretty slow. How slow? Well, according to the Connecticut Center for Economic Analysis at UConn, it could take a decade or more to undo the economic damage the pandemic has caused. Yeah, past 2030. You can read more about this dire report in a story by Keith Faniff at ctmirror.org. Every sector is hurting. Last week we profiled the theater industry. Today we're going to look at restaurants. The leisure and hospitality industry account for the largest number of those laid off earlier this year, and tens of thousands remain unemployed or underemployed as restaurants struggle to figure out how to serve a skittish customer base. Our recent move by the state to open up to 75% capacity in restaurants doesn't mean that much to small places that don't have enough room to socially distance. And the outdoor dining that exploded over the summertime is facing the harsh reality that winter is coming. So how have Connecticut's restaurants stayed alive? How are they planning for an uncertain future? I turned to someone who would know.
1: My name is Leanne Griffin. I'm the food and dining beat reporter for The Harper Current.
0: Leanne Griffin knows Connecticut's food scene inside and out. She's been talking to restaurant workers and owners throughout the pandemic. She told me some pretty incredible stories of innovation and resiliency. And we're going to hear from one of those chefs she's profiled in just a bit. But first, here's Leanne. Leanne Griffin, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: A lot of people would look at your job and say, that is a dream job. I get to go to restaurants and talk with people who make food and write about it. Is it kind of a dream
1: job? Yeah, yeah. And that's part of why this year has been so weird, because that's what you're used to doing, going to restaurants and enjoying their food and talking to them and hearing their stories. And for a large chunk of time, I wasn't able to do that.
0: Why don't we go back to the, the very beginning? So it's March. And we're all watching this uh, COVID-19 crisis as it's it's starting to move across America. Tell me how this all got rolling.
1: My husband and I went to dinner like you did. We had noticed and we had done some stories that restaurants had already seen a sharp drop-off in indoor dining because people were realizing this was a, a legitimate threat and realizing that it wasn't the best place to be inside closed, unclosed spaces like that.
0: But, but what was so weird is, remember that time, people weren't really wearing masks. We were kind of trying to stay apart from each other. But the big thing was, we're not supposed to touch anything else, right? So yeah. we were washing our hands an awful lot. And the idea of beating COVID at the restaurant level was, well, as long as we sanitize and we don't have people touching things and we have maybe a, a paper menu that we throw away, everything will be fine. And that was Yeah,
1: that. T- table six feet apart. That was the thing. And that was the thing that I think they were they were pitching at first was this is what we were doing for safety. But I don't know that it was that obvious at that point that it was an airborne virus.
0: You personally are affected by this because you write about restaurants and dining. And for just a moment, did you think, hold it, if all the restaurants shut down, what the hell am I going to do?
1: Yeah, I knew immediately my job was going to change. And I thought, you know, my job is to go to these new restaurants and to catch what they're doing and to pick up on events and to advertise essentially what people are doing. And I thought, what do I do when this is all closed down? And in the first week, it was getting a lot of reaction to people trying to figure out how people are feeling and how they're going to navigate this. And I think when it first shut down, people thought it would be two weeks, a month. No one knew how long this would stretch. And I don't know that anybody anticipated it's still going on in basically November. No one had any certainty as to what was going to happen. And I think the people have told me belatedly that was the worst part. They didn't know when they were going to open. They didn't know what to look forward to. Um, it was tough on operators and employees alone. So on our end, we had to re-shift a lot of reporters. So the features reporters who now, those of us who cover food and theater and arts and museums, none of that's happening. So we got pulled into a lot of general assignment, the same with a lot of our sports reporters. So we did a lot of work about COVID and everybody was really hands on deck all hands on deck for COVID, we did a lot of profiles of healthcare workers and people in the community doing kind things. I wrote a lot about restaurants that were donating to healthcare workers. There were efforts to do that. I wrote about people doing interesting takeout options, people that had been innovating behind the scenes. The restaurants stepped up immediately to innovate, to try to pull in as many revenue streams as possible. But then things really started to ramp up again once Outdoor Dining opened again in May because it was really, how are we going to transition back to this? How are people going to feel going back out again? Are people going to be scared? How are the employees and the managers going to adjust to these new safety protocols? It was a lot at stake and there was a lot to take in. So this whole stretch of seven or eight months now has been really, its it's been a, a fascinating time to be a reporter on this end at the same time there's so much to keep up with
0: on those early days the innovations that you were talking about maybe you can just go through a couple of those maybe cite some examples because you did notice restaurants trying all sorts of different things as you say some were really trying to stay alive and stay in the public eye not by serving individuals, but by donating a lot of food. Other people had all these new takeout options. I mean, what were you seeing in terms of the restaurants and the way they were innovating?
1: They were, there were a lot of family meals, which I thought was cool. They were doing um, things that were meant for families of four to six, you know, large pans of pasta, pizza, um, comfort type foods. So, you know, larger amounts of things that were meant to feed people or people that were stocking up on meals like that. Um, there were kits where you could take a certain type of meal or, and then produce it at home. I think uh, Tyler Anderson at Mill Rice was doing lobster roll kits. So he would provide all the lobster for you and the buns and coleslaw and whatever it was on the side. Um, people were doing um, there was a, a restaurant down in Chester, Grano Arso that was doing fresh pasta kits where they would make fresh, whatever type of fresh pasta you wanted and take home with one of their sauces and get sort of that restaurant experience at home. And then there were cocktail kits, which I thought was fun because they had allowed for the option of takeout beer, wine, and and spirits. And so restaurants, before restaurants were able to do to-go cocktails, which came, I think, a month or so after the first executive order, they would put together everything you needed for some craft cocktail bitters and juices and garnishes, and then you could make it at home with your own bourbon. And I think that was fun for a while because that part of it was still the novelty let's have some food and drink enjoyment because I know that was what was going on at my house because it well, was what was happening.
0: Well, and we certainly have heard uh, stories about people's alcohol consumption going up during, uh, during the pandemic, but that is one thing I, I wanted to ask you about. It's fascinating. You know, I'm old enough to remember that Connecticut was one of these states with very strict blue laws. And it wasn't so long ago that people are standing on the floor of the House or Senate saying, we cannot have Sunday liquor sales in Connecticut. You know, Satan will come through the door. Now, all of a sudden, we're doing to-go cocktails, and we have breweries and wineries like delivering to people's houses. How the
1: hell did that happen? Yeah, I mean, these executive orders loosened up a lot of... Laws, but I have heard restaurants say that the, the to-go cocktail thing has been a success for them. And then I was thinking of uh, Fork and Fire in Farmington, they're next door to M&R Liquors. So selling beer and wine wouldn't have been all that profitable or helpful for them. So because they have a, a big bar, they put together to-go options of their popular cocktails. And they said that's done really well. I, li- I like this innovation. I hope it stays. I think that's a a good option for these restaurants to get through these months.
0: Maybe we should step back for a moment and talk about the impact of the restaurant industry on the state. You know, it's easy for people like me and you to talk about restaurants because we love going out to eat and we love food and it's it's fun and it's part of our life or our lifestyle. But this is like an enormous economic driver for the state. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of people are employed. I mean, give yeah. us a sense of the of the economic impact of, of the restaurant industry.
1: Well, I think there's something like 8,000 restaurants in Connecticut. This is catastrophic, and this has touched every restaurant at some level. And, you know, I think a lot of restaurants will tell you they're not making a profit right now, that they're probably breaking even, and breaking even might be the goal because they want to keep their people employed, and they want to keep the restaurant open. But, you know, we've seen in downtown Hartford, they're hurting especially because you don't have the magnitude of office workers downtown, you don't have business travel, you don't have event goers, you don't have theater, and these restaurants that relied a lot on corporate catering, you know, people going out for business travel, all of that stuff being gone, and the potential for office workers not coming back in January, even like they said they were going to, I don't particularly see that happening with the, the numbers rising as they are now, and you know, we've been told we're not going back to our building in January, which is what we were planned. So that is a tremendous drop-off, and I don't really know where you make that up. There's a lot, of, a lot of issues at stake with these cities, and it's unfortunate.
0: And, of course, the workers are in this impossible position where if you work in the restaurant industry, maybe you have hopped from job to job, but a lot of the restaurants you're talking about – provided really good employment for people for an mm-hmm. awful lot of time, and now they're stuck either being completely out of work or they're only back temporarily in a way that it's very hard to, to make money. We heard a lot of stories, Leanne, about people who, frankly, didn't really want to go back to work because the deal they were getting on unemployment was even better. What have you been hearing from restaurant employees, restaurant workers?
1: Yeah, I just, I wrote something about this a few weeks ago where I talked to one woman who had been a server at a restaurant in Glastonbury, and she had been there since October or November, and there was something to do with her her employment history there versus a previous employer. She didn't get her benefits for three months, and I, she has a child at home, so she didn't get any sort of, she had no income for three months, and that's incredibly stressful, and so I think she had to go through a hearing process, and she didn't get her Hearing for six weeks, and so this is when you when you have no income at that point. There's no restaurants open. This is completely beyond your control. This is nothing you've done to you know, bring this on yourself. But, but then that this is you know, understandably, the unemployment system was completely overwhelmed because there were so many people that lost their jobs on that March 16th that I think it. I think the system crashed the next day. That's what I was hearing. And so for all of these hospitality employees to be on the system and they were, they were in Facebook groups, texting each other, trying to get some sort of support. How did you get through to this person? Is there a phone number I can call? There was a lot of uncertainty and stress and fear because this was such a mess. Um, And the people that did get the unemployment, like you said, there was an extra $600 a week boost through July and, you know, personally, I was on furlough for three weeks, and that was something that helped me financially. So I can understand if you have a job that maybe doesn't have a set number of shifts per week, that might be more of the money than you were making in the restaurant. So if you've got this unemployment benefit, if that's helping your family, maybe necessarily you don't want to go back to a situation where you could be at risk with um so I think people had to make that decision, and I think, It was kind of upped in. Then the restaurants had a tough time because they had um, PPP money that they needed to use by a certain time. So they needed to have people back or they needed to pay employees to keep that benefit going. So it was difficult. It was difficult for a lot of people.
0: And you talk about the risk piece of it too. It's not as though these restaurant employees were saying, well, I just can't wait until we can open back up so that I can go in there and start making a paycheck again you're in very close contact with the public you don't necessarily know where all this public has been and the protocols while certainly stringent by old standards aren't necessarily so stringent that you couldn't contract covid at work and so that's been a real fear for a lot of business owners and employees too
1: yeah and i think that's what people had to decide if you are somebody that had a high risk family member at home or you're high risk yourself and You have to run that risk for yourself. Is that worth going back when you've got guaranteed unemployment paycheck? And so that was a really tough decision for people. And that was if they received the unemployment at all. Most customers have been great and really helpful and and tipping extra and being really kind, understanding that service employees are going through a lot. But I have heard some horror stories about people being really resistant about masks or getting angry about new protocols or new rules and taking it out on the servers. And that's never okay.
0: One of our local restaurants out here in New Hartford, BLT has a big sign out front that says, don't make us ask you to wear a mask. Right. Because they've just had so many people that they've had to have this interaction with that they literally have to say, don't put our servers in the position of having to do that. It just makes a a stressful situation even more stressful. That's one of the things about these protocols, though, that is so strange. Obviously, there have been a number of executive orders. Rules have changed over time. All business owners are trying to keep on top of this. So what we, we are seeing now is more innovation at the at the restaurant level more ways to try to get people in here but honestly leanne an awful lot of things that don't seem really conducive with long-term success the, the plexiglass uh in front of mm-hmm. the bar servers that doesn't exactly look very friendly some of the the ways in which tables are spaced apart you go into a restaurant it just doesn't feel like honestly the restaurant experience
1: yeah. And I think that's what people have had problems with. And I have heard that plexiglass has been a problem to obtain and it's expensive because it's in such demand right now. Um, we talked a lot, you talked about spacing, the move to 75% dining capacity I think has really only helped out restaurants with large spaces because a smaller space, if you still have to have your tables far apart, that far apart, they don't have the, the space to add enough. So it, it hasn't moved the needle for several restaurants. In terms of, of the experience, I have heard servers say they understand that masks, masks are, you know, they're a necessity because of the health concerns. But they say that you're not, the, the server isn't putting on their full, um, you know, their full face. Like you can't see their smile, you can't see their interaction. Sometimes you can't hear them behind the mask. And there are people that do think that detracts from the dining experience because they are trying to provide that full you know, that full experience for people coming out, spending their money and enjoying a night out.
0: So. so some of the the changes we talk about for indoor dining and the 75% capacity is something that maybe only helps a, a bigger restaurant where you can have more space. So many restaurants have spent an awful lot of money on outdoor dining. They've said we're gonna do this all through the pandemic. But that's mm-hmm. only going to last so long. It is October and it's cold at night. So <laughs> what happens when it starts to be too cold to eat outdoors?
1: I think right now it's a matter of amping up takeout, realizing that that's going to be an option when people aren't comfortable coming indoors. And there needs to be some consumer confidence with eating indoors. And if you're, there are people that that are fine with it, but I'm wondering if people are watching the numbers climbing a bit, and I'm guessing they're going to continue to climb through cold and flu season. And I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are concerned that that's going to be a real problem if people aren't coming indoors, and you can understand why. You mentioned
0: some of the cocktail innovations before. Who else has done well during this? I mean, are there any sectors of the restaurant uh, or food service industry that have really actually come through this okay?
1: Pizzerias. Yeah.
0: Pizzerias.
1: Yeah. Anybody who was already set up for takeout, because. That's the model they know. They can do it quickly. They can do it in high volume. And a lot of restaurants did have to figure out how to do takeout when they really hadn't before. You know, I've talked to some steakhouses where they're trying to figure out how to get that steak the perfect temperature so you can take it home with you. They're not used to that. They're used to serving that, that to you in person. But I have heard from pizzerias that that's just, you know, it's already set up for you. You've got the food ready to go. Um, anybody who already had a takeout model has certainly come
0: through this well. And you've profiled some food trucks. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. Leanne, I haven't been eating indoors at all. I, I don't go yeah, out to restaurants. I, I don't want to be in there. But uh, breweries <laughs> have food trucks every weekend. So we go out and, mm-hmm. and eat at the food trucks. And, you know, more and more of them are really, really good. And they're good at this mm-hmm. whole takeout thing, obviously, because they're just taking the food right to you.
1: Yeah, the breweries, I think there was some executive order that they needed to serve some type of food in order to be open and not every brewery has a kitchen, so calling the food truck to be on site was a natural option and that's done pretty well. Um you know, you can kind of if if they're spacing out what they're doing, you know, you can have fried chicken, you can have pizza, you can have, you know, Mediterranean food whoever is there that night. The food trucks in general lost a lot of business this summer. They They aren't at farmer's markets. They aren't at concerts. They aren't at food truck festivals. So they really needed some way to um, make up that business. And, you know, they're not catering necessarily large parties. So I think the brewery thing was good for a lot of people. Um, I did interview Lizzie from Lizzie's Curbside, who her business, she does a lot of summer business and she does Sundays at the Coventry market. And that was a sort of a drive-through pickup option this year. So Lizzie's big business is the UConn campus and she's there I think she's there year round and certainly does a lot of business while school's in session but because there are so many people students working students at home and employees at home um, she decided it wasn't worth it to park on campus and she was really upset by that decision she's been there almost 30 years But she has a new spot out in Coventry at the Nathan Hale Farm and Feed. And so people have been coming out there five days a week. And so that's been a great option for her. But, you know, when you lose what is almost normally guaranteed business in a normal year, that's a long way to come back.
0: So, Leanne, what happens next? I mean, you talked about how some restaurants are trying to extend the season, but we don't know what's happening with the overall COVID numbers. We don't know if there's going to be some executive order that's going to take capacity from 75 back down to 25 percent or just shut restaurants down it's happening in other parts of the world we've seen a lot of restaurants close and they're never going to come back i mean what do you see as the future for the industry here in in the state given all of this
1: i think it's really hard to tell i think right now there's a lot of dread i think we talked about whether or not people would eat outdoors or indoors once things get really cold um I don't know. I, and it's, it's hard to predict because you, you don't know where you would be. I, I wouldn't have predict, predicted being here in November at this point in March. Um, I think right now there's a, there's a lot of dread, but there's a little bit of optimism that if you can get through the winter, then maybe you can have that, that maybe a return to more normal in the spring or summer, or you get another good summer like we had where you can have that outdoor dining. Um, I think it's tough to predict right now, but I know people are scared and I get that because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know what the next wave is going to be.
0: And are they waiting? Are a lot of these restaurant owners waiting for more assistance, whether it's from the state government, from the federal government? Are they saying we need something in order to stay, stay alive?
1: Yeah. And they're hoping for that. And I don't, I don't know if they're confident it's going to come, but I think a lot of people would like another round of PPP and hopefully some sort of assistance from the state. I don't know exactly what that would be, but yeah, that's probably the the most um, help. Probably would be the most helpful thing right now. And it's unfortunate that it's not coming because this is affecting such a large sector everywhere in the country.
0: Leanne Griffin writes about food for the Hartford Current.
1: Thank you so much, John.
0: One of the restaurateurs Leanne profiled is Tyler Anderson. He's a star chef who's appeared on several food competition shows and who's built a small empire of fine and casual restaurants, including his flagship, Millwrights, in Simsbury. He also operates restaurants in Hartford, New Haven, and Glastonbury. Some of these places are still closed. Others have stayed stubbornly open, and they've been successful. He's banking on more outdoor dining, building greenhouses at Millwrights so that people can dine outdoors no matter how cold. I asked him what it was like that day back in March when he knew COVID would be closing his businesses.
2: You know, it was probably one of the worst days I've ever had. And it was primarily because I had to lay off 150 good people. Uh, For those who run businesses in the restaurant, you know, run businesses in the hospitality sector, uh, the people you have are everything, you know, and uh, everyone says that. But we'd worked very hard to put together a great team. Uh, and when you have to lay off 150 people who are performing well, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. And I, I just felt like I was kind of sending them out into the into the wild, cold world. Uh, so it was a rough day, but it didn't last long.
0: It, it didn't last long in part because you, you tried a whole bunch of things to figure out how you were going to survive through this. So why don't you just take me through the process? Because you you have a number of different restaurants and ventures, and uh, you had to innovate as much as anybody else. What was the process like? And and maybe you can take me through what you did to figure this out and stay alive during this time.
2: I took five days off, and my wife had enough of me being at home. So, so, and, you know, I like to work. So uh, we were back at it. I think day six, we reopened. We were shut down six days before we reopened. uh, And we started a carry-out-only program at Millwrights. Uh, Meanwhile, all the other restaurants were closed that we operate. Uh, And, you know, what we tried to do is just offer... We're in the Farmington Valley. We're in Simsbury, Connecticut. So we're not surrounded by millions of people. So what we wanted to do is offer something different all the time for our guests who are doing carry out. so we did everything from carry out guest chef meals uh, to carry out seven course tasting menus to carry out fried chicken um, we just tried to keep it different all the time and keep pushing and and keep people's attention uh, and then we were able to open outside and we were, we are blessed to have a very beautiful outside area. So we opened on our bridge and down our path. We put an outdoor kitchen out there to be able to space our staff so that we weren't, uh, so that we were socially dist- distancing ourselves. People who have worked in restaurants before, you know, that's difficult. Uh, thankfully for us, we have space. And, uh, then we moved inside. Um, and we, you know, I've been, I've been very, I've been very cautious about inside. We've really only been inside, uh, on Friday and Saturday nights in the dining room and only doing uh, less than 50 covers at a time. Uh, but recently we've put in an air filtration system and figured out some stuff. I feel a little safer about it now. And so we, we've, you know, with, and with cold weather, we need to figure it out. Uh, so that's kind of where we are now
0: when you, talk- oh, and we
2: also created talk you. So we, we, we purchased, I wanted to have, cause you know, who, who still knows what's going to happen here. So I wanted to have the ability to uh, sort of set up shop wherever, whenever, however. We bought a trailer that is a self-contained kitchen uh, that can cater, uh, that can pretty much do anything and doesn't need any gas, doesn't need any power. It's got all of its own, it's got all of its own utility. We have created a taco restaurant in the parking lot of Millwrights using that.
0: So there's a lot of different things that you've tried. Some of them are probably going to maintain throughout this this winter, and and some may change when you're able to open again in, in the spring. I, I heard you um, writing, I think, on social media about what happens with the weather. You still have a lot of people dining outside, and you have a big rain-out day, and that can really impact the business in, in a way that it never used to uh, before all of this.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think every restaurant owner who who operates in the cold weather area is definitely uh, scared about what's to come. I think the the toughest part for restaurants has not come yet. Uh, And I think it's coming and it's with a flare up in cases and with the cold weather, that's a killer combo for restaurants. So we are trying, you know, we have some ideas where, we're we're putting the greenhouses out back, so we'll have a total of seven different greenhouses that'll be single single use uh, for the evening. So basically, if you you know if you if you reserve it, it's yours, completely disinfected, sanitized, obviously between each use every day, uh, but should add a level of safety for people. Uh, you know, and again, we're fortunate enough to have the space. So. As we as we continue, you know, to your point on on some of these things will continue, these things t- take a lot of money, you know. So there are uh, every restaurateur is having to spend like above and beyond just to sort of break even these days, which, you know, is 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 a better option than a lot of other people have. You know, a lot of other restaurateurs in New York and, and around the country don't have don't have the option of even spending money to break even. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with ideas that are sustainable ideas so that that's not wasting money. I don't want to spend, you know, $35,000 on a food truck trailer that I then won't use when this is all done. Uh, We're trying, we are trying to come up with ideas on things that will not only work now, but will work down the road for us.
0: How many of those 150 people that you had to lay off back in March, have you been able to rehire?
2: All of them and more.
0: Wow. So so you have a bigger staff than you did.
2: We do. We have been at... At a couple of the properties we've been fortunate, and our, our, our top line numbers are higher than they were last year, uh, but because of the expenditures that it takes to do all these unique things, it doesn't mean the bottom line numbers are as good. You know what I mean? So it's taking more labor because let's do mill rights, for example. So mill rights, instead of having one kitchen, we now have three kitchens at rights so we have talk U that's in the front parking lot. We have the outside kitchen, which is in the backyard. And then we have the main kitchen. It's been great. It's a great blessing to be able to do that because like I said, we're socially distancing this staff, but also at the same time, just think about the labor model involved in dragging everything out to these different kitchens and cleaning these kitchens and maintaining these kitchens. And, you know, so it adds up. Uh, but, my biggest thing was to try to make sure that we could get everyone we wanted to work with us back as quickly as possible. Fortunately, we were able to do that
0: last thing for you tyler our podcast is heard by a lot of people who make public policy at the state capitol in hartford we We know that the governor opens up our podcast and takes a listen now and again, so I guess if I wanted to give you a chance to to say anything to lawmakers in the state about what you and other restaurateurs need to try to stay alive and thrive throughout throughout this winter. What would you tell people?
2: Anything we need to do to stay safe. Uh, Obviously, restaurants are a major component in uh, the spread of this thing. And I'm one of those who likes to listen to science, and I, I honestly think that Our governor and our government has done a pretty good job at these things. I would just urge them to take a look at the businesses that have been wildly affected and figure out a way to help those, uh, to help all the small businesses who weren't able to, who didn't even have the ability to uh, pivot like I did. I'll be honest, I don't need help. But there are people who at this moment, I don't need help, but there are people out there who need help. So if the focus needs to be on those people who need help, let's get those people help uh, and keep them in business. Because restaurants are such an essential part of our social infrastructure, and we need them. Uh, I don't want to live in a world without restaurants, that's for
0: sure. Tyler Anderson, thanks so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time, too. Have a great day. You can read a lot more about Connecticut's economic recovery at ctmirror.org. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, Kyle Constable, and Jess Friedman. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided our steady beats. They were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. You can subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. Just go to ctmirror.org slash podcast. You can rate and review us when you get to iTunes, too. It actually really helps. Would you believe it? We're about a week away from the election. On the day before the election, we'll have a little bit of a primer on what you need to know about voting in Connecticut this year if you haven't voted early already. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you soon.